Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say with me today is Pete Walker. He's a therapist, an author, uh, and is a survivor of complex PTSD and is in recovery from uh, complex PTSD. Uh, Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and where are you Zooming in from today? I'm Zooming in from my bedroom office in Berkeley, California, and having a respite from a nasty week of unbreathable air. And finally, a beautiful breeze has come and cleared the atmosphere. So I'm celebrating that. I never thought breathing could be such a high. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly looks beautiful there today for you. Okay, so uh, we've already got an acronym, right? We're, we're barely into this, uh, this conversation, and uh, we've talked about PTSD, um, uh, and not only that, but complex PTSD. So I wonder if we should start with just defining what that is, and then for our audience, giving a little bit of you know, your backstory in terms of uh, you know, your experience of it and, and your background and what brought you to be recovering from it. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. So what, it, what, what does it stand for and what, what's, what's complex PTSD? So complex PTSD is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And I often like to try and define it as, as opposed to PTSD, which I think most people understand. And simply put, PTSD is getting stuck in a trauma response, getting struck in, stuck in an adrenalized fight-flight response all sympathetic nervous system, all doing inability to relax and hypersensitive to being triggered into uh, fear, anxiety, depression. So that usually comes from single incident trauma or a small, a relatively small period of time where you're being traumatized. You could get it from being in combat. Often people get it from being raped, a single incident or, or mugged. Um, and that is in contradistinction to complex PTSD, which usually comes from prolonged period of being in danger, being unsafe. And it usually implies, in a high percentage of cases, developmental trauma. It usually happens in the family to a child who is constantly triggered into uh, a fearful state by the fact that there's either some kind of abuse going on, which could be either verbal or emotional, uh, physical, in worst case scenarios, sexual. Um, but it can even be um, caused by neglect, uh, where the parents are so preoccupied that the child is living in a state of fear because the child knows that they can't get their needs met. They can't go and ask for help. Um, that they seem to be a bother and um, that they're, they come to believe that they're unwanted and start to develop a sense of being ugly and awful. And they adopt uh, perfectionism as a hope of getting safe and as getting, getting some sense of belonging. And this kind of profound neglect, which is usually behind it all, even when there's abuse, it's just very scary to be a little toddler and not to be able to get help, not to get picked up, not to get affection, not to belong, not to have anybody interested in you. So, and so in, if I would flip to my own story, if this is a good time, yeah. you know, I grew up in 
I grew up in New York City in a time when there was this kind of Catholicism called Jensenism. Jensenism. Which was yeah. Jensenism. Yeah. And some priest from Ireland came over and it's this it was like it's like fundamentalism, fire and brimstone and you're evil in the sight of God and it, it cements the perfectionism. You you can't have you can't even have a, a bad thought or you're gonna go to hell and the priests and nuns were very good at describing in incredible detail the suffering and the pain and the eternity of it. So I got it both at at school, Catholic school, in the church, and then from my family. And I had two rageaholic, narcissistic parents who were very free-handed with slapping. And even worse, I think, is the verbal and emotional abuse. When somebody, whenever they are noticing you, it's in a negative way. That They just... Uh, there was a lot of sarcasm, a lot of criticism, um, a lot of angry comment. And just when you're little, it makes you feel hopeless and helpless and like you're stuck in hell interminably because when you're a little kid, you can't even imagine getting out. And so the second big characteristic that that leads to is developing this kind of perfectionism where it just seems the psyche is wired for it. Well, maybe if I was more helpful, maybe if I never made a mistake, and maybe if I don't ask for anything, and maybe if I'm really quiet, maybe if I'm invisible, maybe then I'll be safe. Maybe then I'll get some love. And this sets in for, you know, this is, that's your environment for 18 years. It really becomes a major program in your brain. And then the second program that comes up is this endangerment part of CPTSD. You're always looking for the next incoming round if you're a soldier. You know, the next ambush. And if you're a kid, you're sitting at a table with the next, when's the next ambush going to come? When am I going to get slapped for not eating all my peas? When am I going to get yelled at? When am just because they're in a bad mood? You become very hypervigilant and you're looking through the world through a filter of danger. And you develop this psyche that is just always negatively focused negatively focused on yourself as imperfect, which blossoms, so to speak, into self-hate and toxic shame, and negatively focused on the world as, as dangerous. And so you're constantly on edge. Right. And when did you start to realize that perhaps your childhood wasn't normal or that you may have had some issue with your, I don't know, your behaviors or your thought patterns? When, when did that consciousness emerged for you? Um, I guess when I started reading the, the epic poet, uh, Walt Whitman, a famous American poet who was very into the joy of life and the beauty of it. And he was peripatetic hitchhiker guy that went all over the place. And somehow I ran into him and there was something in my nature that they couldn't kill. Where I, I, was, I always thought something, it was something good in life and that there were many things to be happy to be here, nature, art, poetry, other people. That there were, I, I was lucked, I lucked out. I, I made friends. I was a baby boomer and well, in New York City, lots of kids on the street. And so when I think back to my childhood, it's like going inside the house is like this dark black and white place. And when I look at outside, it's colorful and it's alive and it's full of possibility. Right. So you had a sense that, of, of the hell of your household what from from what age when did that start to emerge for you um 
I it started to emerge in adolescence, which can happen right. for everybody. And I kind of did a a splitting kind of thing where I saw my father as the evil one and my mother, who was ev even worse and more surreptitious. And she was a borderline personality disorder. I saw her as the good one. So I, I became hip to my father really early and um, really separated from him emotionally. But it wasn't until I was in my mid-30s that I really realized that my mother was the one who had undermined me. And reading a book called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller opened me up. And uh, I started understanding the importance of what happens to you in childhood, how that really frames how you see the world and how you, the, the third big um, nasty function of CPTSD or uh, symptom of it is it's, it's also called developmental trauma disorder. And you, you don't get to develop a positive relationship with you, with yourself. That's one. And you don't get to develop a positive relationship with anybody else. And you can usually have this thing called repetition compulsion where you get in, involved with one borderline or one narcissist after another. Oh, and, and you treat yourself in a, in a really negative kind of, kind of way. And I, I just, I, I hitchhiked around the world looking for answers, did a whole spiritual trip, and then finally got into psychology down in Australia and Sydney. And I started to read some stuff that made me understand, you know, how impactful it was what happened to me. And I've had, you know, I've been a therapist for 40 years, and I've done a ton of individual and group therapy for myself during that time. And I've learned a lot about what works, what helps, and, and what doesn't. Pursued a lot of fast fixes and salvation fantasies. And finally got to the place where I'm understanding that this is lifetime work. And, right. But it gets easier and easier with time. Right. So, so talk me through then. So, what, so okay, so you, you have some inkling that, you know, your household is, you know, not all it could be, let's say, you know, that, that, that there's... Um, it's uh it's not you know full of the joy and the color as you describe this out on the streets but what 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 does your 20s look like if you're emerging as you know a perfectionist uh hyper vigilant you know what yeah just talk us through that sort of period until you found the alice miller book you know how did that go for you that was um there, there's four responses people can have to trauma one they can become a real fight type you've heard of the fight flight response yeah so that's that fight flight response gets really activated in a CPTSD survivor. So some become fight and fight types, and that tends to be a narcissistic um, approach to life. You know, I'm just going to, life's scary and I'm going to be the most powerful one. And then others of us, which I am as a flight type, we, you know, we try running away from home when we're three and five and seven and it's scarier. And so we learn some uh, symbolic flight which for many people is like an obsessive com compulsive where you're escaping into your thoughts and into your actions to try and stay away from the painful abandonment melange inside you, which is this nasty combination of depression and fear and shame. So I became a flight type and I, I went traveling, you know, from through my twenties, I went all over the place and, you know, I was hippie and I did all, you know, I also escaped by, you know, smoking pot and and taking psychedelics. And fortunately, the psychedelic was one of my big biggest openings the first time. And that's a big thing with CPTSD now. There's trained counselors taking people on psychedelic journeys, which seem to help them 
break free from this just really cramped, narrow way of looking at yourself where you can only see yourself in a negative way. And I've seen untold people be able to break out of that stuck pattern um, for the first time with the help of psychedelics, where they kind of just find this epiphany inside themselves, this mind-expanding experience of realizing that they're good, that they're that they're worthwhile, that they don't have to hate themselves. It's it's not enough to break the whole cycle, but it's enough to start pointing you in in, in directions that are really helpful. And because I mentioned it, I wasn't. Let me just say this one yeah. caution. It's not a good drug to do by yourself. It's a very dangerous drug. It can lead to having a nervous breakdown, going insane. And so that that's what's beautiful, what's happening over here. I'm not sure if it's happening on your side of the pond, but they're in, in uh, psychology programs, people are being trained to lead people through this in a safe way, to interview them in the first place, to make sure that they're not pre, pre-psychotic, ready to have a break, and then to guide them through it. Right. Yeah. And so with that caveat in place, which I, you know, I understand the importance of what was, um, you know, what was your, what was that experience like for you? Just, yeah. To talk me through that. That sounds like an interesting moment for you. Um, I, I still, to some extent think it's the most powerful experience I ever had. I, I, um, I read, um, Timothy Leary's book, which was a translation of the Tibetan book of the dead. And it's a way to go through, often when you're first coming onto a psychedelic, you can get terrible hallucinations. And it's a way to learn how to go through that. If you go through that and you just stay present to what you're experiencing without freaking out or running away from it, it opens up in in, in the way that near-death experiences open for some people to a place where they're on the other side of this life and feeling a loving connection with with many people many people on the other side and have this kind of sense of like, wow, the essential nature of, of life is that this is a place where you can open your heart to the things that you love and to the people that are safe. And it brings incredible meaning and fulfillment into your life. And, and what, and what, yeah. Tell me, where, where are you when you have that experience? I'm intrigued. Uh, I was, I was in my room. I, I read the book just before put some good music on and just sat there and um, eight hours later came back and I had tears of joy running down my face for the last couple of hours and just feeling like, wow, man, this is just so life, such a beautiful, wonderful thing. And, and I, yeah, I came, I, I came out with the, the terrible, the cl- terrible cliche of God is love. I mean, there's some loving benevolent being, not, not, the, not a guy with a beard or a woman, you know, in robes, some non-incarnate benevolent creative force behind behind it that has a lot to do with love. Right. That's why a lot of people get into beauty and art and stuff like that, because it kind of stimulates that that understanding that there that there really is good here, you know, despite all the terrible politics and COVID. Right. And so you you come out, you're in your room, you're eight hours later, you've had this experience. Yeah, what, what happens next? Uh, yeah, I go tell my girlfriend about it and, um, and, and she's just, I'm so happy and I'm so excited and I'm so full of words to explain it that she wants to try it. And, you know, so it becomes a period of a year of doing it a lot and, and then finding out, Oh, 
for a lot of people, you can't do it for much longer than that before you start to get bad trips. But then I started reading spiritual books and they seemed to be explaining the kind of state that I had experienced, this kind of state of equanimity and knowing and being able to understand why, why there's bad things in the world and still, however, there's a good force behind that. So I went to India and looking for a guru and, and a lot of them were really corrupt and, you know, and meditation didn't get me in the same place. And then finally, I, Alice Miller and psychology and emotional release work. And to, to me, that's one of the main things that I do with people and I've been doing with for 40 years is helping them understand that you, you, there was a death to your whole self when you grew up in that family and your ability to love life and be involved with life and have good relationships is severely delimited by this terrible fear of other people, this criticism of others, this criticism of yourself. And it's this kind of this accumulation of depression, fear and shame that's kind of like an emotional death and you can grieve that out. That's so I am very much into grieving. My book, the Tao fully feeling is about the four processes of it. And then I, I started finding some really substantial relief through the grieving process. I, I, I did a bunch of encounter group where it was being encouraged in those days. And I had a, a, a release in a group of a terrible experience I'd had in India and cried my head off and, People comforted me, and normally I wouldn't want anybody to touch me. And I just felt so comforted. And it just began became my passion to look for ways of getting in touch with the grieving process. Right. And and so the, the question is then, why why was the you know the, the taking the trips and the and the meditation and seeking a sort of a, a spiritual path? What why didn't that work? I think because um, they were they were like salvation fantasies. They were an attempt to, in an all or none way, put this painful past behind and get to some place where there's no no pain in life. And one of the big psychologies that helped me a lot was existential psychology, which made me realize that the pain doesn't just come from your family; it's exacerbated by it. But you know, there's pain in life. You know, you. You can't get you can't get protected from loss. You know, relationships are going to die. People are going to die. Jobs are going to be lost. And on a very microcosmic level, you're going to wake up. You're going to go to bed feeling good. and You're going to wake up feeling crappy. You know, and even on that level, you can grieve the loss of feeling good and have a cry about it. Have a bit of a bitch and moan, and in a way that doesn't hurt you or hurt anybody else. And it can help you move through. It can help you to metabolize those painful emotions and right. to me that's the final frontier of giving up the salvation fantasy and learning how to metabolize pain necessary you know unnecessary the unnecessary pain of childhood the residue of that but also necessary pain in a way that you're not running from it you're not me over medicating it you're not hating yourself or shaming yourself you're not blaming it on somebody else you're being you're learning how to stay present to it in a way one of the processes of grieving is to just feel it in your body sometimes you, you come in and you're trying to feel in your body you might you might have a cry you might have an anger and then you might feel the sensations of it and it's 
before pre-grieving, you just want to get away from them. They, they, I, I can't sit here anymore. But you can learn to just stay present to the tensions that you feel in various parts of your body, and it metabolizes them. And right. then the ultimate one is is verbal ventilation. Having one person, because that, that's the big developmental arrest. You never had anybody soothe you when you were in your pain. You were alone. That was, that became your your fatal flaw. The thing about you that makes you so unlovable. That's where the perfection, perfectionism constantly comes back to. And so... Many many of us need to have a therapeutic experience. Some some people are really lucky, and they tend to they, they get a partner who is just pretty together, and grew up in a family where people were compassionate to him or her when they were hurting, and just that compassion, just the the commiseration with another person when you're in pain, can can start to metabolize it, and it's right. the essential process in therapy. You know that you can you can cry, you can be mad, you can be depressed, you can and and you've got some a, a therapist who knows how to integrate those, knows there's a certain normality to it, and they can hold you. They hold you with their compassion, and over time, that generates the developmentally arrested function of self-compassion in yourself. And you learn how to to be on your own side, to be a, a, an unflappable, fierce ally to yourself, no matter what you're going through. Right, and 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 that process started for you with this encounter group yes that was like one yeah. of the key, key things that happened so, so to, to talk me talk me through that as well you know it'd be interesting to illustrate it so you know your yeah how does that encounter group work you know what's that first watershed moment for you yeah um it's you know, you got a leader and the leader has done it and the leader uh is maybe trained or read the book of Will Schutz Encounter, one of the founders of Encounter Group. And I, I was lucky enough to do a, a master's degree with him. And he, um, he was just the epitome of authenticity and vulnerability. In the very first session of this group with people coming from all around the world, he's, he's telling us, okay, we're going to start the group and we're just going to, and me and Judy are the leaders. And tears start running down his face. And he's this really kind of butch looking, shaved head, kind of New York guy. And his tears are in, and he's just with, with no shame whatsoever. I'm a little upset today because Judy has just told me she wants to break up with me. But he was so comfortable with his own emotions, and he knew how to let, you know, work through them by just letting them come through. He, he didn't miss a beat. And he you know, told us what was going to go on. And so, you have in the, so the group starts, and you're encouraged to look at some piece of pain that you've not been able to – get any relief from that you've probably not shared with anybody else and you share it with the group. And so he facilitates the process that that's encouraging you to get in touch with either your sadness or your anger about it, release the anger in a way that doesn't hurt you or somebody else, cry, put words to it. And, and, and for, you, for you, this was this experience with the guru, right? And you're, is that, that's the one that came up and you, you picked. It was it was worse. I I was um, I traveled for a year with a guy I met on on the road. He was a, I was a veteran. He was a veteran, and um, he went crazy. He you know he he did too much psychedelics and got addicted to a pot, and he went he just totally flipped out. He thought he was the queen in Nepal and dressed up and 
he'd, go, he'd walk down to one station and he one block and he'd hear a radio and it would tell him to go to the next block and and became very paranoid. And eventually he blamed me that I that I made him crazy and he disappeared into the crowd. And I was just so guilty and so bereft. I didn't know how to cry in those days. So depressed. And it just uh, it, I just it would just haunted me until. Well, I guess this was five years later when I'm in this encounter group and and I figured he was dead and there was nothing I could do. We we had gone to the embassy and they didn't like the looks of us and they told us don't come back here to pick up our mail. And he came from, a, he was like alienated from his family and I was and there was nothing in reality I could do. So I started telling that story in the group and I just started crying my head off and I just cried and cried and cried and cried. And people came and, you know, they would pat me on the back and being, and I came out of that group and I was like, it was like, I was tripping. It was just like colors were brighter. And I, I felt like I was, you know, dancing and, you know, I was just, it was an amazing release and lasted for a couple of weeks. And, um, um, and, and that's what really got me into catharsis and, um, pursuing that and pursuing all the various ways of doing catharsis and you know to this day I, I can still do that you know, I can I might need that I may be going along for two weeks and I haven't had a flashback into the abandonment depression in, in a couple of weeks go to bed feeling good and for God knows why I wake up in the morning and I'm in it and I just kind of feel the sensations of the depression and if I'm lucky I have a, a bit of a cry and, and it just kind of washes it out and I talk to my wife about it and She's empathic with me, and so, and it's the essential process I see in, in therapy and people getting getting over this. That you you can't get the emotional pain out with just thinking. You can learn concrete uh, cognitive systems that help you to fi finally understand that I really got to do this. You know, I can really understand it now. But if if you don't um, it, it's like there's this emotional fuel system of fear that for some for reasons I don't understand, but tears is our major major way of releasing them. Having a good cry. I've had a, a thousand experiences of worrying and the critic running wild and beating me up. I have a good cry and it just, it just disappears. So it's as if if you don't have the cry, the fearful thinking goes into your brain and makes you worry and makes you paranoid and and uh yeah and so i find people don't really start moving to the getting relief from having these flashbacks and getting stuck in them to the abandonment depression until they learn how to egocentonically egocentonically ego right that's a good yes that's a as word. opposed to ego dystonically for many like for most men crying is ego dystonic it it goes against everything you've been taught you know it makes you feel worse you makes you feel more ashamed so um cognitive help and the help of you know a good therapist or a good friend can help you see how you learn that and how it, it's a really unfair way to relate to yourself and can start to open the ground where you can cry in a way that feels egocentric. it leads to the self-compassion the key developmental arrest to go through life not able to feel sorrow for yourself and empathy for yourself when you're having a hard time no matter ever it, it, some people you know a lot of us men can go through our whole lives that way which is 
total impatience with ourselves for for our pain yeah i'm just this you know recalling my journey and when i first had a cry with uh, uh yeah my primal therapist um, uh-huh. which i started with uh yeah i think it had been about about or no i'd, I'd cried once in the uh-huh. last decade i think i worked out wow um, well so what was that like yeah i mean that was um it was a, it was some ways a relief like i've i've shared this on the sh- sh- show before but when you start trimal therapy which um you know i suppose is similar in its ethos to what you described as these encounter groups in that it's encouraging you to get into your grieving uh you spend uh 21 days right you call it this 21 day in- intensive you're not allowed to contact anybody you sort of self-isolate you're sort of you're forced to stay with your feelings and the only thing you really do apart from eat and sleep is see your therapist every day and i was going to this ther- the therapist like every day and i could hear people in the therapy rooms around me like crying and screaming and bashing the pillows and i was just and all i could say to the therapist was i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine <laughs> yeah. i'm fine and the therapist would be like, what do you mean by fine and is it I'm, I'm, well I mean, I'm fine. And, you know, I just I'd tell, I'd get frustrated, but that was as far as I could ever get. And then he sent me to watch this movie and um, it, uh, it was about a breakup of a relationship and I'd come out of a relationship and mm. um, I started to, to, to sort of just well up a little bit in this movie. And then I came in the next day to therapy and I, you know, I cried for the first time. I was like, I've done it. I've cried. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. 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 And, oh, good uh, for you. So, uh, so that was uh, yeah my my experience of starting it um ah yeah and it, and i suppose yeah i don't know maybe for some people they do that once and they do, you know they don't want to go there again but for me my intuition was telling me no this is you know this is what i need to be doing um and uh yeah continue to develop that mess that muscle really to as you say to grieve ever since yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, congratulations um, i mean it's just uh... It's such an it's such a essential tool to surviving in a difficult, confusing world. So right. I, you still you still have some access to your tears? Yeah, I mean, I was crying. Yeah. I was on the, on the floor crying two days ago. Um, All right, my man. <laughs> <laughs> High five. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, it's. I mean, it is, it is the, it is the path to, yeah, if, if one, certainly if one is traumatized, has been traumatized in any serious way, it is, it is the path to a more contented life. Uh, and probably for, even if you're not right, as, cause as you say, there is just the existential pain of being alive, even if you didn't experience um, yeah. developmental trauma. Um, so let me just share this free association I'm having, because I was raised in a really macho neighborhood and I, and I was in the army and, and that, that was a lot to overcome. And I, I just sort of so ironic that, so I, I had the virile, courageous, you know, I can stand up for myself, subpersonality. And I, since I've discovered crying, I feel like I'm a stronger man. I'm a, a more adaptable man. And I saw this Ken Burns movie about the Civil War. And there's this incredible scene where he's reading the letter of some soldier and general grant was in a fight against it was battle of bull run you know hundreds of thousands of troops on both sides and union army gets his ass kicked really bad 
And he sits in his tent all night and he just cries and cries and cries all night long. The men can hear him crying. And in this show, it's like about a 10-part show, men back then could cry. They'd write it in their letters. Oh, I'm thinking about you, dear. I miss you. And it's bringing tears to my eyes. But so he cries in front of the men. They get up in the morning and they get out there and they just turn the battle around. It's just there's something releasing about it that allows you to find you have a uh, access to all of your talents and attributes and abilities and that's one of the things i've just loved about it over the years i have some really big thing i'm struggling with and worrying about it for a couple of days i have a good cry about it and then i know what to do you know and i feel the courage to be able to go out and tell that boss or tell that official in the psychotherapy world you know what kind of bullshit thing they they might be doing? Excuse my French. Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. And I've had the same experience that you know one might assume that this is somehow a feminizing process, right? I think because we, yes. we the idea of crying and grieving with uh, you know as some some sort of feminine act or sort of femininity. But yeah, exactly. I've had the, precisely the same experience. If anything, I've well, I, I suppose I've got in, into. <laughs> I've got in touch with my humanity uh, to, in, in a deeper way, um, mm-hmm. both my masculinity and my femininity, right? It's, yes, it's like yes. Both, both. It's just my wholeness is uh, I have a greater access to as, as I grieve. It's such an, you know, it just seems to be such an important uh, pr- yeah, process for our evolution as human beings in, in general. I see that as a hallmark of psychological evolution. I like to call it psychological androgyny, you know, and right. by being open to getting a healthy relationship with our anger and sadness, then we've got, and this is a Jungian thing, you, you know, an, an ability to be in touch with our anima and our animus, our fem- like you say, our female qualities and our male qualities. And it makes you a whole person and a more capable person and a more functioning person. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think that it's interesting for you, you picked up on, it gives you this ability to go have those conversations, to go have that fight you need to have. And uh, for me, I've marked it in terms of my addictions, right? And it's a lessening mm-hmm. of my addictions over time. Significantly, yes. it sort of had a curative impact on my addictions, you know. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, uh, that's, yeah. That's that's the um, that's the, been the big hat. But also, yeah, I think just general confidence and ability to go out and face the world. Um, and that's the that's the kind of dichotomy because you, you you feels like you know on the one hand you're sort of completely helpless on the floor weeping and in my case because i actually do a lot of work even the sort of pre-childhood right i mean into a lot of the work on my birth and so then all of that's pre-verbal right it's not yes yes much it's a sort of pure physical release um yeah and then uh yeah i'm totally helpless but the other side of that is more strength and power and wholeness i love the way you put it yeah and I love how you associated it with decreasing addictions. And it was the same thing for me. My addictions just have gradually uh, decreased over the years. Because I don't need to say, I, if you know Gabor, Gabor Mate, yes. he's, a, yeah, you know, he's really, he works a lot with junkies and stuff like that. And I totally agree with him. He says, almost every addiction, the bottom of it is self-medication, you know, is um self-medicating a pain self-medicating emotional pain and so the way out is learning more healthy ways of releasing your emotional pain i've just seen it over and over in myself and other people it just gradually reduces the addiction 
Yeah, with with no need for willpower. I mean, that's what's sort of remarkable. Yes. Like you, you, yes. You don't, you don't, yes. Um, yeah. I don't. Yeah. You, you don't. You don't need any mind tricks. <laughs> you just gradually yeah. release. Yes. You reduce your need for that medicant. Yeah, for me, it, 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 it's it's that bottom line. It just is. It builds my self compassion. I can be with there with myself no matter what I'm feeling, and I don't have to numb it, you know, with pot or beer, and um, and I don't want to because I got I've got this more this way that doesn't give me a hangover, you know. It's kind of like okay, well, I'll have a beer or maybe I'll have two. I'm gonna stop there because, you know, I, I'll feel worse than than I do normally yeah okay so i mean i'm really interested in, the, in this story though so sort of picking up the thread again so you 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 done you did this encounter group you know you cried your eyes out in relation to this this friend who had, had left you uh, when you were in india right um mm -hmm. what, what happens after that like what's what's the next step uh, you know for you in your journey well so this this um happened this encounter group happened in australia i was at sydney university enrolled in the uh, social work program. And so I, and Sydney was a little bit like San Francisco in those days. S San Francisco was kind of spilling out. This was the, the birth of humanistic psychology, you know, and it was the going away from the just total negative focus of psychology on what's wrong with you. And it, a belief that there's something good inside, which I think, which a lot of people experimenting with psychedelics helped them to see that there was some essential goodness at heart in a human being. And so I, I just pursued, there were tons of therapies and approaches, primal, rebirthing, gestalt. I just pursued a lot of that stuff. And um, I finally became, I was just going to school because I didn't know what, what to do. And, and I could get the GI Bill to go there and it was free in Australia. And it was a nice way of meeting people. But I got to a place where I started practicing and um, I knew I needed more training. So I went back to San Francisco and enrolled in this master's degree with this guy, Will Schutz, who's just an amazing human being. And that blossomed. I shifted out of that program to, a, I finished that and I still felt like I didn't have all the pieces. So I went to John F. Kennedy University, did a three-year degree that had me working as a counselor. And within six months, I had a full practice of 25 people as an intern. Right. And, I, and I had massive imposter syndrome stuff going on. I just couldn't believe it. Every session, I would be surprised when the person would show up, you know, and that, <laughs> that started getting me to start to see the perfectionism stuff, you know, on a daily basis. And I, I could see somebody 50 times and they, I could see they're glowing about the session. And this next session, I know that's where it's going. So then I got into my own therapy around the perfectionism uh, syndrome. So, so this lovely, compassionate woman three times a week for five years. And it was the same oh, thing. That's a Every, commitment, right? That's a real I was a commitment. Yeah. 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 I really wanted to know what therapy could do from all my things that I'm a proponent of have worked for me. And, and there's things I'm not a proponent of. And I'll frankly say, and because I think, you know, there's some fast fix that's like, I get tons of people. I, I, I get um, about two to 300 emails a, a month telling me about various therapies that made them feel worse and really shamed them, particularly the fast fixes. I hated cognitive behavioral therapy to begin with because I was supposed to be able to just stop 
negative thinking by saying affirmations. Now, it's a good tool when you combine it with emotional release, but if that's the only thing you're going to do, that, that, that fear and shame is just going to keep coming and infecting your thoughts no matter how, how much positive thinking you do. Yeah, so anyway, that's my, I said experience. To, and that, my experience with that is you, you're kind yeah. of you're relying on your willpower to keep generating mm-hmm. these thoughts, right? And and there are other yeah. studies on willpower. In fact, we've had one of the you know the, the leading thinkers on willpower on this show. And you've only got you've only, it's like a, it's an expendable resource, you know. And you you've only got so much willpower available to you in a given day. And they've oh, done these studies that. with you know I don't know if you see these studies with judges, right? Whereas if you catch the judge um, at the end of the morning, uh you're going to you're far less likely to get a compassionate response from that judge because it takes a bit of willpower for the judge to take a risk and give you perhaps a lighter sentence because his record might be on the line if his faith in you is betrayed right so it takes willpower for a judge to go against the guidelines and be more lenient and so he will only do that at the start of the day and just after lunch and if you're if you're up in front of the judge outside of those hours, statistically, you're much more likely to get the standard sentence or a harsh sentence. Um, but wow. the point being, when it comes to cognitive therapy, you know, we've only got so much willpower. And to do these affirmations or to force ourselves into a behavioral pattern, we can, we can only sustain it for so long uh, before the willpower gives up. And so it's, uh, ultimately, it's a, it's a flawed strategy, I think. Yeah. God, that's well said. I love, I love the, that way of conceptualizing it. I hadn't thought about that. It's similar to research I've seen about how attention takes energy. There's that old saying, pay attention. You got, you literally have to pay some energy to yourself, to your brain to do that. And you, and you, you can't do it all the time. And, and that's what I would find would happen with that is I'd be really tired and I couldn't fight the critic worth a damn. You know, I couldn't. You know, it was an automatic pilot and it didn't need any of the energy. It just, it just took over. So I went and started seeing this woman and I was just, I wanted to have a relationship where I didn't have to act. I wanted to really see if that was possible. If there was somebody that could really stand this part of me that I was disgusted with and I thought was fatally flawed. And so I'd come in every session in a flashback, you know, and disclose my, you know, either the shame or the depression or the fear would be up or some combination. And, and, and I'm, I'm waiting for her to get disgusted with it. And, and one day after about a year, she just started tearing up when I was doing it. And she was really sad that I was so hard on myself. Another major, you know, top 10 moment of my life. And uh, so I'm getting teary now, just remembering that. And, I, and not only did that really help me trust her and believe, but it became something that I started letting myself do with clients. That, and it just comes up naturally. It's kind of like what you would see if you, if you went out on the corner and you saw some mother smacking her little three-year-old around and he's crying and stuff like that. You'd, part of you'd be mad, but part of you'd also be sad. And so, yeah. you know, I've worked over the years. I've got an article on my website called for a free article using vulnerable self-disclosure to heal relational arrests, relational developmental arrests. So when somebody really loves you and you're telling them about your pain and you're really in pain, it's normal to commiserate. And to the degree that you're free to do that, you're going to tear up with them. And it's a tremendous piece of feedback to that person to heal their, heal their shame. So, 
So that's one of the things I got out of that therapy. And, and, but I had the imposter syndrome there too. And, but it wasn't me. It was like, you can't trust these therapists. You know, they're going to turn on you. And five years she didn't. You know, by about the last year, I was really believing that she approved of me, that she liked me, that she thought I was a good person. And, uh, right. Oh, that's funny. It reminds then, me of, um, so when I, when I was at the primal center, this, you know, this place in Santa Monica, um, we're doing the primal thin center. Um, Art Janov's wife, France Janov, uh, drives up in this white Jaguar. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful white Jaguar. And I remember thinking, that bitch, making my money, spending it on a bloody Jaguar. Uh, yeah, I know the feeling. And here I am. What am I doing throwing my money at these people? And uh, yeah, so I, yeah, that, that I resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, it, but she, 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 she was, you know, by the end of it, I'd have bought her a Jaguar, right? I mean, yeah, it's um, in terms of the benefits had on, on my life. Um, okay, so you, yeah, so you, you, you get a great deal of uh, value from this, from this woman. You know, you, you, you yeah. have that moment where she commiserates with you. You've still got this, I guess, what is it? A sort of reverse imposter syndrome. You, you're thinking they're the imposter. Um, yes yes outer crit like when you have cptsd you can you often can vacillate between inner critic and outer critic the inner critic will be ragging on you for being imperfect and then the outer critic will be looking at people and going oh they're fucked they're bad they're terrible and you know they're they're liars and you know and it it, you know it's a a way to protect yourself from bonding with somebody and, and getting hurt so I kind of broke that cycle with her and I knew that, okay, my next relationship, uh, this is what I want. There's, there's got, you know, it doesn't mean the person gives you a hundred percent unconditional love like a, like a therapist can do, you know, for an hour a week or three hours a week, but that they're, you know, you, your, your sense is you, you're a good enough person. This is a Winnicottian idea, famous British therapist. You're good enough. You don't have to be perfect. And, I, I love you. I care about you because I've known you for a long time and your positive, good, your qualities far outweigh the, you know, the small potato mistakes you make here and there or, you know, the once in a while slipping into a angry mood or that kind of thing. Right, right. So by the time I got out of there, then I, I was, you know, I, I was starting to feel like, okay, I, this vulnerability and authenticity stuff that Will Schutz first introduced me to and that I've been using with my clients. It's, this is really core healing stuff. And I started to write my book, you know, and I took six years to write the Tao fully feeling. And that was, it took, I, I, I wrote it myself and distributed it myself. So it took a while to get going. Uh, but you know, it was always favorably reviewed. And then about five years after that, I started writing articles about complex PTSD, how to work on, I had to work on the cognitive level in a way that's more powerful than just traditional CBT. How to work on the emotional level in terms of grieving and developing your emotional attention. How to work on a somatic level of staying in your body so that you're not armored all the time. How to work on the spiritual level, spiritual in the sense of seeing that life's a gift, you know, and and, um, developing choosing activities that help you see that, you know, so many people will write to me going, saying, I, w- I would have gone down the tubes if it wasn't for nature. Just get that one over and over and over, you know? 
Yeah, and so um, I got a lot of articles published, and then I, in 2013, I put them together into the complex PTSD book, which is, with no advertising, is, has sold over 100,000 copies. It's out in audio wow. now. Yeah, it's and I can recommend, I, I listen to it on uh, audio book, <laughs> and I can, well, I recommend both books, you know, they're, they're fantastic. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Uh, and so sort of co comprehensive in all the different facets of um, the way people experience um these conditions and and how to you know approach recovery from them yeah thank you uh, yeah I yeah they're, they're that, kind yeah. of compendiums almost but very readable yeah or listenable yeah. <laughs> if you choose <laughs> yeah yeah good to hear <laughs> yeah. yeah um i suppose the one thing that's interesting for me that came from reading the books is my experience of this work um it's almost like there's there's two there's, sense there's two modes of grieving for me right there's there's the crying about you know mm -hmm. there's the grieving that i had this childhood or i had this addiction that i've suffered from over these years and that's sort of a part of grieving and then there's the kind of the crying in or the grieving in and i've found that the work that i've needed to do is not just the crying about it's not just the grieving about it's the going and reliving those experiences you know yes. and saying the things i wanted to say to my father or yes. making the moves i needed to make during my birth because you know I, I go all the way back to the i got stuck in birth and that was actually my major trauma and and mm. doing the things i couldn't do in that mm. in the latter phase of my birth and 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 then sort of grooving grieving through that you know so it's this reliving yes. that's so important yes, totally, um, and totally. you don't and it and I didn't see that sort of referred to explicitly in the book so much. And I just wanted to, yeah, to, to test that with you, you know, your perspective on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I thought it, I thought it was in the book. I have, I haven't delineated them in that way, but I, um, in the grieving stuff, like in chapter eight, I talk chapter seven, I talk about uh, blame, healthy blame. And I talk about the importance of, knowing what was unfair in your life, knowing how you were abused, knowing how you neglected. Chapter eight, I talk about all the different types of abuse and neglect, and I encourage you to assess your life in that way and use the blame piece to be mad, to be mad for that little kid that he was treated so terribly, that she was so abandoned in, in, in such a way that made her feel like a piece of crap. And that be her key self identity. And then in chapter nine, I talk about self reparenting, which is, which is, I learned a lot about from John Bradshaw. I thought he was really brilliant on this. And it's about going back and having a relationship, having a dialogue with that kid and doing the kind of stuff you're doing with a client, helping them to see their, their, their essential goodness and helping them understand that when they made a mistake or, did something they weren't proud of, how it naturally followed out of the abuse and the neglect. And my favorite visualization around it, which I still do with myself and I, I do with people is if I had the, if I had one wish, you know, I got that magic lantern and you know, had only one wish and when the genie came up and I, I, I tell that to my kid, I would go back to, you know, the earliest time I'd go back to like, you know, when when they didn't come and pick you up from the hospital right away, when they left you there for a couple of weeks, I'd come and I'd pick you up and you'd come, you you come with me and you live with me and Sarah and, and Jaden, my son. 
you know, because you you deserve that same kind of love. And look how good Jaden is doing because he got it. And so I, I do versions of that with people, and you know, and long term, you know, over years of it, un unearthing the various themes of the neglect, and and one of the one of the places I still grieve is when I find I got lost in a in a critic attack. It doesn't happen very often anymore, but I just feel so pissed at my parents. They installed and the nuns. They installed that. They taught me to only look. If the, if the inner critic is one thing, it's negative noticing. It's just looking at yourself negatively. And so I do a one-two process of I'm, I'm mad about that. That really pisses me off. And um, I'm gonna we're gonna shift the perspective to the positive, positive noticing. It's, it's like a perspective shift more than just a thought shift. And we're just gonna be looking for what's what's good in me. And if I, I may be doing it with my adult self, I may be doing it with the kid. You're such a, you know, you're a smart kid and you're good hearted and you're resilient. You know, you, you stayed alive, you know, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, sometimes that'll bring up some tears too. And that's a process that I do with clients all the time, working on that level. So I'm so glad you brought that up. It's so important to grieve within. To, it's the unfinished business of the past, grieving the losses of childhood. Yeah, I think I think yeah, maybe I'm not articulating it quite so well, but it so it is I think for me it's actually going back to the scene, right? Which I I know yeah. you're describing here. So, you know, go back to that time you let's say you weren't picked up by your yeah. parents yeah. or the nun yeah. verbally abused you and and doing the thing you couldn't do, saying the yeah. thing you couldn't say as if you yeah. were in that scene, right? Yes. And then yes. getting to the feeling through that process as opposed to being the kind of observer compassionately witnessing that scene it's yeah. it's re-inhabiting the scene reanimating the scene and 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 sort of following the course that you would have wanted to in that moment had so you you're being to. so you're being the three-year-old you're kind of yeah being that three-year-old yeah 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 i yeah that's really powerful thank you for that i really haven't um done much of that and i could see how powerful that would be yeah and, really I, and i've found that that's um you know in combination in combination with the grieving about because there's still there is something to be said for grieving that that happened yes. but just getting access to what i would have done had i not been terrified yeah. or shut down or uh, or whatever it might whatever response i might have had in that moment to the to the trauma um, that's great yeah it's like the yin and yang of it i mean the witnessing is the uh, a guy from ucsf i can't think of his name now who's saying witnessing you have to have witnessing to overcome the trauma you usually need at least one other person to witness it but this is uh, the yin piece of it it's like re reliving it reliving it in that moment not just from going back and being reparenting the kid and being there to protect him if he gets in trouble for yelling back at mom and dad, but actually letting him yell back at mom and dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there's re-witnessing and then there's re reliving or re-inhabiting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lovely. Doing whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was just one, you know, one, one um, reflection I had on what may have been different, you know, in terms of my process, but yeah um, yeah yeah but then the other thing the other reflection i got was you know 
it's almost like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? I mean, I, I, I've gone sort of so hard into my feelings mm-hmm. and, and made really my whole sort of process about getting to the feeling. Um, yeah. To some extent, you know, completely ignoring whatever thought process I had. And what yeah. I found powerful, especially about the, the complex PTSD book, is you, you, know, you, you do sort of come full circle and, 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 and certainly had me well do notice what your thought patterns are like you know you know and and you know be mindful in that sense yes and yeah take notice of where you've got a a negative inner critic take take notice of that and then yeah you can still you know follow the feelings from there but um you know it's it's about everything right it's it's about the cognitive it's about the emotional it's about the physical yes there's another kind of yin-yang process the, the, the connecting the cognitive and the emotional around that. And I needed a witness for that. And that I do a lot of witnessing people on the subtle ways, those thoughts. I think the main source of flashbacks in the beginning, it's kind of, you start to notice, well, maybe somebody looked like my father or, you know, somebody that used that same negative expression, that's a trigger. But the main trigger I see is, is, when you fall back into noticing yourself in a negative way. And, mm. you know, I, I think I was my inner critic and so many of my clients are, my brain, my brain was just all negative, negative noticing. And I've just fought for a long time to get more and more ability to stop that, use my anger, invite the anger up to just be pissed at the people that taught me to do this, noticed me in this way so that I, I identified with the aggressor as Freud would say, and now I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so I would make note to to listeners, if this is making sense to them and they want to explore it more, chapter nine in my CPTSD book has a section, a list of 14 different ways that the inner critic attacks us for not being perfect or makes us miserable by uh, seeing the world from an endangered perspective and what you can say to each of those. So it is kind of affirmations. And if you're putting it together, you're putting, you're allowing yourself to use your anger as you notice the negative noticing part and to open your heart and compassion to yourself for having gotten trapped there again or not notice this subtle way that you do it. You know, and maybe you'll have a good cry for yourself. God, I've probably said this to myself. I've called myself a piece of shit 10,000 times, you know, honestly. And that was and that was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> That's just during this show. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally relate to that. Um, and, and for me, what was what was good in the book was just for me, it's the subtlety of it. I, you know, I, I didn't really experience net verbal abuse at all, really. Uh, you know, one one some some aspects of bullying, you know, from kids, but certainly not in the family. You know, that wasn't mm-hmm. part of my family. So for me, it's not you're a piece of shit or you're useless or you're an idiot. It's more like, oh, damn, I wish I'd done that better. Oh, I could have, you know, I could have yeah. done that a bit better. Or yeah. could, oh, yeah. oh, I wish yeah. I hadn't been late for that thing. Or even if it's like a minute, like, oh, I, you know, I just could have yeah. just, if I could have just done yeah. that little piece. You know, that was really subtle, you know, insidious. And it's almost like it's so subtle. I've kind of skipped over it in all my recovery yeah. process. And it was your book, you know, in the last few weeks that right. really, you know, brought it back to my attention, you know. No, you know, notice these negative thoughts, even if they're very, very subtle. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and almost I'd related to it as a positive thing. You know, that was, that's what has me be powerful because I am, I do have this attention to detail and I, I, I am on a quest to be the best I can be and improve myself. Mm. It was almost like I had it as a, mm-hmm. you know, that was my defense and my way of not addressing it was to sort of relate to it as a positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the defense that a lot of people have. Oh God, if I, if I fight this perfectionism, I'm going to, I'm really going to, I mean, you think I'm a piece of shit now. Boy, where do you see what happens to me? But it's that classic thing. You get the 99 on a test and you're not celebrating that. It's that 1%, that one question, one question you missed. And this can come from neglect alone. You know, I see people that haven't had the physical. And in some ways, neglect alone can be a, a, a block towards being able to really penetrate this stuff because it's easy to do the critics comparison thing. and compare yourself unfavorably to other people. And so when you recover, you compare yourself unfavorably to people who had it so much worse than you. So what am I worrying about this for, you know, and not really seeing that just that little thing of your whole body armoring, you're a minute late, your whole body is armoring, you know, and you just kind of shifted your focus. You kind of, if you looked in the mirror, you had to look at disappointment, maybe contempt at yourself. So these are the more subtle levels and, uh, and they can be harder to see if they didn't come directly from somebody. But in order to survive, your psyche embrace this kind of perfectionism as a way to be safer and hopefully have people like you. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's important. Uh, and what you're, you, what you're talking there about how just the neglect alone, because that for me, the, the childhood, the, the birth was, you know, as a, a major physical trauma, my childhood environment, it was more neglect, more emotional neglect than active yes. abuse. And I yes. remember having this sort of guilty feeling early in therapy where I w- read this book called the, the Boy Called It. I don't know if you've come across that book, mm-hmm. but it is a description of the horrendous abuse that this boy experienced mm-hmm. growing up in America. And his, you know, this mm-hmm. mother, she picked on him alone, wouldn't feed mm-hmm. him, forced him to drink bleach, made him sleep under this, just this horrific stuff. But I remember feeling jealous of the kid, right? And the reason I felt jealous of him was because he identified his mother as being evil really early on. Yes, right? yes. I know, so I know he, what you mean. So he knew he was in a bad state mm. here, right? And yeah. so he was getting into therapy like in his teens. You know, he yes. was starting to work on this stuff yes. pretty early because he could identify as being problematic, right? I I had this view of my childhood as being you know fine until you know my early 30s so I didn't even become conscious that there may have been some issue in my childhood until much much later and that was the sort of source of envy you know so I, you know I remember feeling some guilt about having that envy but it was there nonetheless Oh uh, yeah yeah I, I totally know what you're what you're saying there and I sometimes feel sorrow for my clients that haven't had any abuse because it takes a lot longer to get it you know it's just that's why i wrote chapter five what if i wasn't hit and i try and get people to read it a couple times because it kind of skims through it because it's but it's really about how emotional neglect is the core of complex ptsd only a person who was emotionally neglecting could expand into getting even worse to the verbal and emotional violence but at the core they never bond with you they don't love you in a substantive way and so it, it is harder to see and I've, I've even made the remark somewhat jocularly, but in, also in a, I'll just say jocularly, I'm so glad I got hit because it, you know, it got me out of 
my what you were saying about this kid it wasn't nearly as bad as that but it made me re- i i could figure out in my rational mind that was wrong you just don't do that to somebody that's one quarter of your weight and smack them as hard as you can across the face so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yes okay i mean we've been we've been going for a, for a, for a while now this has been a, a fantastic uh conversation um it has so what's really it? enjoyed your well, for me <laughs> you'll be the judge no, of whether it too. was for you <laughs> no well i i love you know i i like to proselytize so i appreciate you've really guided it in a way that's really allowed me to get to the key points that i really like to and in such a kind of organic way that it's been really wonderful but you've added some really wonderful points here and i really like that stuff about i'll I'll be playing with that because of this i'm grateful to you the thing of going within myself when i was two and three and i mean i've done a little bit of it but not i think really structuring it that way and setting an intention to do it is gonna uh, be really valuable yeah it's certainly been yeah yeah it's sort of makes rounds out the process for me right it's uh, yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, okay so so you've three books to your to your name are there are there yeah. plans for any more i hope not <laughs> um yeah i guess it depends on how long i live i'm 74 now but um 74 i mean there you go there's uh, there's a testament to the this kind of work I mean, yeah, thank you. It feels that way to me. I'm so healthy that at my age and don't and and I and I really attribute it to the the work and how it's gotten you know helped me to get out of bad bad habits with food and substances and isolating because of the grief work and the therapeutic work that's allowed me to feel more a part of the world and know how to. Uh, nurture myself and just be on my side no matter what it doesn't usually take if I, if I stray away from there it doesn't take much very long to get back there can yeah, i so ask I get you a personal much... sorry go on no, no, get to finish. yeah so if, if i i said this already about you know the, the homesteading in the calm eye of the storm and and that that metaphor is about you know getting you, comfortable. one of your books right yeah this yeah, yeah that's my latest book I, I, latest so i finished that about two years ago and and it's taken it taken the reader it, it a lot of people i've read have told me it's given them hope because i was in some pretty bad place to start i was in a pretty bad place to start and i re- got myself in a lot of trouble in the first 10 years that it is amazing i'm still alive before i started finding something and i think it helps people come to the work later on and have hope that you know you can work through this stuff and Life has just gotten progressively better for me since I was 30. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, which, yeah, I, I've, I've, I've read that in multiple places that, that most people aren't really ready for this depth of work until they're 30, right? I, I, I might go as far as to say 40s or 50s. I don't, I don't get really? that many people. I'm I'm, get, I'm getting people in their teens writing to me now too, which is really thrilling because I think this is an epidemic. You know, I've, I've had tens of thousands of people over the last twenty or thirty years when I've had my articles out, just telling me, uh, giving 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 me gratitude for 
helping them to get out of just self-blame and toxic shame and and being stuck in etern the eternity thinking of being a child in a loveless place. And so uh, people from every walk of life, all, all the continents, all the religions, I think there, I think there is an epidemic of it. And I think that's why people are getting to it sooner because of this wonderful thing that's happening on the internet. There are so many self-help groups, you know, uh, online support groups, some really good ones. And what you gotta do is Google support group for somebody that was abused in, in the Catholic tradition or in the Mormon tradition or support group for people that were just uh, emotionally neglected or and you, all this kinds of stuff comes up. And it's one of the key things about healing. And in some way, groups are even more powerful in healing shame is working with people that have been through something that's similar enough that you kind of feel empathy for them. And over time, you consistently feel empathy for them. And it just starts to bleed back to yourself. You know, like, well, yeah. you know, I, I want to cry for them. Maybe I can start to cry for myself. It was so unfair, so unjust, so lonely. Yeah, that that's a really important point because it, it's something something I sometimes skip over in my stories. You know, I started in a 12-step group for alcoholism. Uh -huh. um, and, of course, they don't really talk about childhood trauma. And it's not really a place where people talk about therapy particularly. Um, that was my no. experience of it, right? I mean, it's almost, conceived, yes. you know, it's sometimes referred to yeah. as the easier, softer path. Or, you know, it's the, um, it's almost the like white a, knuckle uh, path. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's. it's yeah. Um, and I think that's probably right for people who've experienced cognitive therapy, right? It's, it's, yes. you know, if you're doing a, um, a, a, a form of therapy that doesn't really penetrate the deeper parts, yeah. uh, then yeah, you, you aren't going to, you are likely to end up feeling isolated and worse off than if you stayed in a, in a support group or a 12 step group. But, uh, conversely, if you do do the deeper feeling work, um, uh, certainly if it been my in my experience i ultimately let go of those groups and felt i didn't need them but in the beginning back to your point really important it was a it was a place really? where i could identify with others i could start mm. to just sit down and even mm -hmm. if i couldn't really share what i was feeling at least i could sort of identify with other people in pain you know if nothing else right mm -hmm. it, so yeah it's, yeah it's an important first step important first step into authenticity and vulnerability your yeah. first step of really showing yourself to not be perfect and that's yeah. what a lot of people say the fellowship is what really can make it work particularly if you get to a meeting that's not doing a heavy shame trip right like some meetings are yeah 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 exactly yeah okay um so um thank you once again uh thank You're you welcome. you know thank you for the conversation thank you for the books yeah. um we'll put links to all of those books in the descriptions uh for the show uh anywhere else you would send them uh in terms of they want to learn more um there's a couple of websites i like a lot um some so many people when with cptsd one of the things that we have in common is we were raised by narcissists you know, the, to to be particularly if there's abuse, uh, but even neglect can do it. There's a self-absorption absorption in the parent that is empathyless. There's no empathy there. So there's this tremendously popular group on Reddit, and it's uh, Reddit.com 
slash r slash raised by narcissists. That's a really, really excellent one. And, yeah. and you know, Googling for, for support groups. I just highly, highly recommend that. And my book has a, has a chapter, the CPTSD book on other books to read. And there's, you know, there's some tremendous books out there. I call it bibliotherapy. And before I could see a therapist, and I get a lot of clients telling me this, I just had to read a lot of books and start to get the sense of, you know, I think this guy would probably be okay with me. You know, the way he, I can, it just seems like a kind person, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's an incredibly, uh, yeah, and a great way to get started if you can't afford a therapist, right? Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. so I guess we're, we're finishing up and I really appreciate this opportunity and I'm so pleased. I, I didn't know what was going to happen with it looking like a business organization. And I'm so delighted to find that you are somebody that has done some really deep work and, I, and it shines out of you and it's so lovely to see. And, uh, Thank you. Um, yeah. And likewise, if I'm shining as you are in my 70s, I'll, uh, I'll be happy. Yeah, you will be. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, thank you, Pete. Uh, once again, uh, enjoy the rest of your day in the beautiful Californian sunshine. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Richard. And keep up the great work. It's wonderful you're bringing this kind of information to the internet for more people to get tools to understand themselves and improve their relationship with themselves. So, Good job. Keep up the good work. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, Pete. Okay. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Thank you. Ta-ta. Bye-bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.